All right, we are back. Let's let's do some science in this segment. I want to start with something we um, spoke about at some length a while back, this fascinating story about this mono lake quirky bacteria supposedly substituting arsenic for phosphate. This generated a lot of uh, hubbub out there in the blogosphere. Uh, apparently NASA had sent this coy uh, news release out hinting at discoveries uh, tied to the search for extraterrestrial life. Article by Karen Kaplan and Aaron Brown, the Los Angeles Times, on December 26th, uh, <laughs> talked about how this really got people all charged up, and then it turned out it was about bacteria here on Earth. To quote from the article, News reports were dewy-eyed with wonderment over the study, which challenged conventional notions of what life on Earth or elsewhere could look like. Then, in short measure, came the scientific trash talk. Flimflam, naive, fraudulent, an embarrassing PR gaffe, mediocre science that got undue attention because the buildup was too sexy to resist, the case of the peer review process gone horribly wrong, question mark, wrote the authors, all played a role, but mostly the wrangling is just a turbocharged version of the kind of debate researchers have engaged in for centuries. Apparently these researchers took this exotic organism and, and decided to see, well, could it survive without phosphorus, one of the six elements essential for all living things? Well, they started growing this organism with less and less phosphorus and made arsenic available because that's in the environment in Mono Lake already. Well, according to the initial press reports, the bugs were surviving, replacing the phosphorus in their chemistry with arsenic, which is right below it on the periodic table and thereby acts like phosphorus. When I first heard about this story, I thought, what's the big deal? But then when I read that apparently the arsenic had replaced the phosphate in the DNA, one of the backbone molecules of the double helix of DNA, I thought, wow, wow, they are onto something. Well, maybe not. To quote from New Scientist magazine, Though the discovery of alien life, if it ever happens, would be one of the biggest stories imaginable, this was light years from that. What we got was a paper published in Science purporting to describe a bacterium that has replaced phosphorus throughout its biomolecular machinery, including DNA, with arsenic. If true, it would be the first time a life form has been discovered that can operate without phosphorus. They go on, Yet it is far from clear that a shadow biosphere has been found. The paper has been attacked by scientists who say the evidence that arsenic is actually incorporated into the DNA of the bacteria is weak. Commenting on this for the magazine was Stephen Benner, chemist at the Foundation for Applied Molecular Evolution in Gainesville, Florida, said Benner, I doubt these results. He noted that a lot of what they found appears to be DNA that contains phosphorus, the regular kind. He said it remains to be established that this bacterium uses arsenic as a replacement for phosphorus in its DNA or in any other biomolecule found in standard earthly biology. Also sounding off with Rosie Redfield at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, who said the paper does not present any convincing evidence that arsenic has been incorporated into bacterial DNA, calling the molecular biology methods used crude. She went on to sniff, I'm not surprised by NASA's publicity juggernaut, but I'm very disappointed that these scientists did not bring higher standards to their work. Well, the debate will go on on this, which as it always does in science, and they're going to go back and forth, and they'll probably study the organism some more, and no matter what comes out of this, it's going to be curious and interesting. It just may not be quite as earth-shaking as the initial headlines led us to believe. A new scientist quoted Carl Sagan, who once famously remarked, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. 
And unfortunately, that same rule has been applied to a subject Carl Sagan uh, uh, dearly loved, the possibility of life on Mars. We talked on this program about how they are apparently, from three different measuring sources, finding methane in the atmosphere of the red planet. Methane on Earth can be, re- can be produced by you know, inorganic natural processes, but mainly it's produced by the action of various types of bacteria. There seems to be some evidence that certain areas on Mars are producing methane, which led people to believe that perhaps organisms beneath the Martian soil are doing the heavy lifting. But there's a recent article out now about this, this topic that says that uh, for some reason the methane is disappearing not over a period of decades, as would be expected, but it seems to waver throughout every Martian season. And per the rule of Carl Sagan, this is an extraordinary claim because you have to find a way to break down that methane quickly and no one can figure out what in the atmosphere would be doing that. It doesn't mean that something isn't doing it, but it just makes it hard to figure out what is going on. This too will be debated about uh, in the year to come and we'll try and follow that debate because frankly, the subject of extraterrestrial life is highly interesting. We're going to have to go to the SETI Institute again down in Mountain View to talk to some of the good people down there. We'll do that in 2011. How about this item that's part science, part politics, and part stupidity? Article from the New York Times reprinted in the Sacramento Bee last week. Headline, Snake Owners Stung by U.S. Proposal to Ban Invasive Species. Article describes a Jeremy Stone living in Utah with an annex full of baby ball pythons and boa constrictors. Notes that like many snake lovers, Stone has been seething at the U.S. government since early last year when it sought to ban the importation and interstate transport of nine species of foreign snakes. The Federal Fish and Wildlife Service says that animals, if freed, posed a serious risk to native ecosystems across the southern United States. It's a joke, Stone said, of the science behind the government's decision. Well, no, Mr. Stone, no, in fact, it's not a joke. Although, according to the article, roughly one million Americans are believed to own snakes of the types listed by the Interior Department. As reported previously on this program, Burmese pythons, some thought to be dumped by pet owners and some that escaped, are establishing themselves across the Everglades, where they're currently swallowing up everything from endangered Key Largo wood rats Two, alligators. The population has been expanding northward at roughly three and a half to six miles a year, which is described as Indy 500 speeds in reptilian terms. I don't know. For the past few decades, I've been dumbfounded that snakes like this are allowed in the U.S. Because in areas of milder climates, they could escape or they could be let loose and take over like they're doing. Notes this same article, it's estimated that suitable climates for the Burmese python in particular might include the 11 southernmost states from California to North Carolina. And of course, if global warming continues apace, the snakes might even be at home in New York City by 2100. The Burmese python is the largest among the subspecies of Indian pythons. They can grow up to 20 feet long. They can weigh up to 200 pounds. I'd like to quote a website uh, from Melissa Kaplan, who had the following to say about the Burmese, Burmese pythons. Think, do you really want a snake that may grow more than 20 feet long or weigh 200 pounds, urinate and defecate like a horse, will live more than 25 years, and for whom you will have to kill mice, rats, and eventually rabbits? 
Many people think when they decide they don't want their Burmese anymore, when it gets to be 8 or 10 or 15 feet long, it'll be easy to find someone who does. Take a look at the animal classifieds. They always have sale ads for big pythons. The zoo doesn't want any more. They already have one or more giant snakes from other people. The local herpetology societies and reptile veterinarians always have big pythons for whom they're trying to find homes. Breeders keep breeding them, however, because so many people are willing to buy these cool giants, knowing fully well they'll be dumped when too big. At 10 feet and 40-plus pounds, a 3-year-old Burmese is already eating rabbits a couple times a month and is described as very difficult to handle alone. You have to interact with them constantly to keep them tame. Do you really want a hungry, cranky, 100-pound, 12-foot snake mistaking your face for prey? Well, I would say I think the answer to that would be no. Melissa Kaplan goes on to say, owning a giant snake is not cool. It's a major league, long-term, frequently expensive responsibility. Not only that, but even the nicest, gentlest of berms can become killers, even when not very large. As one Colorado family found out when they came home and found their 14-year-old son dead after being constricted by their 8-foot, free-roaming Burmese. So uh, as far as this correspondent's concerned, uh, snake owners can get as outraged as they want. This really needs to get reined in. I can't believe this New York Times article uh, quotes this snake breeder saying, oh, it's a joke, referring to the science behind the government's decision. He claimed that his animals raised in captivity posed no threat. They'd be picked off in an instant in the wild and would have no idea how to fend for themselves. Well, no word how he explains that picture that was on the Internet last year showing a burst-open Burmese python that had tried to swallow an alligator. A rather large alligator at that. Anyway, speaking of crocodilians, as we have been a couple times in this program, I want to note in our obituaries the passing of Hendrik Kudzia. He was a South African kayaker and explorer. Last month was investigating the headwaters of the Nile River and the Great Lakes of Africa, considered the darkest part of the continent's dark heart. Been paid by a couple of Americans to help escort them uh, through this area of Africa and explore it. Mr. Kudzia was apparently the first person Back in 2004, to kayak the entire length of the Nile. Took him four months to cover the 4,200 miles. One point during that journey, he and his companions got into a tussle with a crocodile. They had to beat it off with helmets and paddles. As they got so intimate with the beast, they could see the plaque on its teeth. Well, unfortunately, on December 7th, uh, another crocodile attacked, and they were not able to uh, fend it off. He was pulled out of his kayak with fatal results. When I read about this, I did have uh, to give my foolhardy episode in Costa Rica a rethink. You know, it's probably better to be safe than sorry. Hendrik could see it was only 35 years of age, but uh, he certainly lived life to the fullest and had to be aware of the risks. All right, we have to end this show on, I think, a little bit of a happier note. So how about this item? Reportedly, for the first time in at least a century, U.S. fishermen won't take too much of any species from the sea this year. That's according to the nation's top fishery scientists. This projected end of overfishing comes during a turbulent fishing year that's seen New England fishermen switch to radically new management systems. Scientist Steve Morawski said that for the first time in written fishing history, which goes back to 1900, as far as we know, we've hit the right levels, which is a milestone. Well, we hope he's right, and we hope that fish stocks do get a chance to recover.
That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to our good pal, Stephen Valentino. In the weeks to come on this show, we're going to bring on Professor Charles Bamforth of UC Davis to talk about his, uh, his book on beer. We've been assured by multiple sources that he is an excellent guest. We're looking forward to that. And on next week's show, we're going to speak with Sports Illustrated writer Kevin Cook about his fascinating book on a man called Titanic Thompson. You probably never heard of him. I sure hadn't. But to say that he is an especially colorful character would, I think, fall short of, uh, of reality. Looking forward to that on next week's program. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you then. Strange, but don't change, and I let her.